Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They had been been around the block a time or two. What's the first deal they built, I bet? No, no, you know, I think they were, the the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped up car, and he he complained that the government gave him these piece of crap, cheapo cars, and that, that were really no match. But he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was the chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually, he was the guy who who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a a barbed wire fence. So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast, available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Vault Podcast. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. Presented by QWare. Maintain excellence. I couldn't believe every time we turned around, Harry Hyde was putting a set of tires on this thing. If I don't work on it, and I don't own it, I don't go race. He told me one time everything he had was either bent, broke, burnt, or pricked. Me and uh, Marcus, there was only two guys that really didn't have much funding, and we were racing to outrun each other, and I said, I don't need this. The day NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future. Hello, I'm Steve Wade. And my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast presented by QWare. And Steve, last week... I came across what I thought was a pretty cool discovery. 
I am a regular at Debbie's Snack Bar, as we have discussed on the show before. That's just our local hangout. That's where we go to kind of relax and kind of be amongst friends and the locals and everything. And Steve, there's a fella that has been a regular up there for probably a couple of years now. And he's somebody that I know well enough to say hello to, and I've seen him at the Y a time or two. Somehow, last week, the conversation got around to NASCAR, and he started talking about some of the tracks that he had been to, and he was talking about tracks that people from around here wouldn't ordinarily get to go to. Right. He was talking about Michigan, and I think he said something about maybe Ontario. So that kind of piqued my interest, and so we started talking. And it turns out that Dennis Roenick was a crew member for Die Guard Racing and Daryl Waltrip back in the 1970s. And then he got another gig as a tire carrier and tire changer and mechanic for Osterland Racing and this rookie by the name of Dale Earnhardt. (laughs) That is cool. And he brought in a photo album of pictures of him and Victor Lane he was there in Victory Lane when Dell won his first race at Bristol. Victory Lane in Atlanta when he won in early 1980. So, yeah, Dennis is the real deal. But in this photo album was something that I kind of had a hard time figuring out what it was, but it was actually a sponsorship proposal going into the 1980 Winston Cup season. How about that? I've never seen a proposal. And the language was just fascinating. They were asking for $14,750 a race. (laughs) Not a bad sum for those days. $14,000, almost $15,000 a race. And there was also an option to renew for the 1981 season at the same price if the deal was signed for 1980 on or before May 1st, 1980. Well, that is interesting because 1980 was a 31 race season. Yes. And at $14,750 per race, that would have netted the team $457,250. That was a very good sum back then, I'll tell you that. Nowadays, not so good. (laughs) I don't know what kind of space you'd get on a car for that. But back then, that was a very good sum. However, Rick, in 1980, uh, the sponsor for Rod Oslin and Dale Earnhardt was Mike Kerbin and Warner Hodgson. They were <laughs> on the side of the car. And it was 1981 before Wrangler came on board to start that season. And I kind of wonder if Wrangler paid this kind of money. I would say it would be in the ballpark. And actually, Wrangler was on the car at Ontario. Correct. In November of 1980. So I think they were on the car just for that one race. That's right. And then going into 1981, they had the deal full time. So then also Dale was going to be available for 12 days for PR or promotional purposes at no additional charge other than his expenses. His expenses were going to be covered by the sponsor. And if the company wanted him for anything else past those 12 days, there would be a nominal fee whatever that fee would be, it didn't specify, plus the expenses. Here's something else. The proposal concluded by specifying, you will know we have not mentioned the winning of races. While this is important to anyone involved in automobile racing, 
a meaningful program cannot be predicated or even influenced by the winning of races. We feel a successful program must be based on the consistent and useful participation in racing and not by living and dying on winning. The odds are always long. Therefore, our approach is one of involvement, not necessarily victory. If we win, that is frosting on the cake, a bonus you might say, but our program will be developed totally for maximum exposure of your company. Well, now that's pretty smart. What they're saying there is they're not going to base any funds given to them on the basis of victory. Victory is not going to be the way to put the money into the team. However, they do expect to be consistent and competitive. That's what they're basing the money on, not victories. That's a smart move. And Steve, the bottom line is this. What did Dell Earnhardt and Osterland Racing accomplish in 1980? They won the championship. They won the championship. That would have been money well spent for a sponsor back then. <laughs> it absolutely was. So, Steve, again, I just thought that this was such a cool find, and it did get some attention on social media. I posted the one of the pages on Twitter, and I did send copies to Dell Jr. and Kelly, and they were both just, this is wild. They were as spun out as I was by uh, probably the $15,000 a race figure. I don't know that $15,000 today, that would cover the tire bill, probably ballpark-wise, but not anything else. No, absolutely not anything else. And that's the difference. I mean, uh, back then, let's face it, things cost less. But it's, let's be relative about it, too. People were paid less to do yes. the jobs that we do today. Steve, this week we are going to share the second and final installment of our interview with Jimmy Means, and he talks this week about his dream ride with Hendrick Motorsports and that one race deal that he had at Charlotte. He talks about how it didn't necessarily turn out the way that he wanted to after an early accident took him out of that race. He also talked about how the terrible accidents involving J.D. McDuffie, Neil Bonnet, and Rodney Orr finally convinced him to step away from driving. And he also finally concluded by talking about what he's doing these days as a team owner still plugging away in NASCAR. And Steve, he also did tell us some stories about his son Brad and Dell Earnhardt Jr. getting into some mischief in the garage. And he also concluded... <laughs> by talking about his truck driver, Brian Hippie Dorsey, and some goodies powder, quote-unquote, that he got from Hippie. <laughs> Let's leave it at that. Steve, then in our second segment, we are going to go back to the October fifteenth, 1987 issue of Grand National Scene, and that issue carried coverage of the Oakwood Homes 500, won by Bill Elliott. That was the race where Jimmy Means had that one race deal with Hendrick Motorsports. And also, it covered the carnage that took place in the first half of that race. And that race took a heavy toll on a lot Absolutely. of competitors. Absolutely. Some of the best drivers in NASCAR were swept up in incidents you would never believe. Finally, this week, we have new PayPal support from Brian Shoemaker. So, Brian, thank you. Thank you so much for that help. I really, really appreciate it. Listeners, if you could, please help us out on Patreon, help us out on PayPal, support QWare, support Brian Kelb, our sponsors. They have been there almost from day one with us, and 
their support has gotten us to this point. If you can help us out on a monthly basis, you can do that at patreon.com slash the scene vault podcast. Or if you would prefer just to do a one-time show of support, you can do that at paypal.me slash the scene vault podcast. We had another question from Billy Brittingham. Jimmy, I was wondering how the talk started for you to fill in for Tim Richmond and Hendrick at Charlotte in 1987, and were there any talks about you running further races in that car that year? I think, what was it, 87 it was? Yes. It was 87. We, yeah. had, we had some good runs. We, fin- we led some laps at Richmond. Uh, ended up ninth, I think, but we led some laps. Uh, we led, I think we led three different times. Uh, the leaders would pit for tires and we'd stay out on our old tires and it took them a while to get to us and pass us. So we had a good run there. And then we went to, uh, Dover and had a really good run. Uh, I think we qualified the first round, knocked Earnhardt out of the top 20, which when I came into pits, he gave me the high sign. And, uh, so from there on, from there, I guess, uh, got a little bit, you know, some people showed some attention and, uh, Jimmy Johnson was the team manager. Uh, I think he's passed now of uh, Andrews Motorsports at the time, and he called me and said, uh, "We want to talk to you about driving the 25 car at Charlotte." And I said, "Who is this, Jimmy Johnson?" So <laughs> I hung the phone up, and then he called back again. He said, uh, "I hung the phone up again." So, so you hung up on Hendrick Motorsports twice. Yeah, I thought they were playing a trick on me. <laughs> so. Uh, Finally, called back. Said, "Don't hang up. Don't hang up. This is it's really is Jimmy Johnson from Hendricks Motorsports." And I said, "Okay." Then when we went from there, so I listened. Then was running more races for that team ever discussed, or did you know that it was going to be a, a one race deal? No, it was just it was just a one shot deal. Okay, you know, you know if things could have worked out different, you know we hadn't gotten that wreck and we had a really good finish. Who knows? But there was a lot of positive things that came out of that. I got I got some more rec- recognition that I wouldn't have got if I hadn't drove that car. And I think I was probably the uh, Cinderella-type deal of that race. You know, So everybody was pulling for me. And uh, after that, we are fortunate enough to get Alka-Seltzer for three years. So you know, a little limelight, you know, no matter positive or negative, you know, it has an impact. So, What was it like for you to go to the racetrack that weekend and not have to worry about buying tires, not have to worry about paying for the crew rooms, not having to worry about paying for their food. What was it like for you to, to go and just focus on sitting in the race car and driving around the racetrack? Well, going back to Jimmy Johnson, let me th- say this. said, said, the only way I'll drive that car if you let me put 52 on it so I can keep my owner points up. And at the time, you know, the 25 wasn't running all the races, so they didn't have a problem with that. So that helped me twofold, you know, uh, yeah. a chance to really get some points and if with a good finish. But, yeah, I mean, it was just – I could have got used to that. It was it was awesome. <laughs> now you know it just. Uh, uh, I couldn't believe every time we turned around, Harry Hyde was putting a set of tires on this thing, <laughs> and uh, we scuffed. I, we scuffed all our tires before the race, and I hated. We had probably ten sets of tires there, and we couldn't run them because I soon crashed. But it was, it was an awesome feeling, and and you know a lot of I had a lot. It was a lot of pride to getting to, for me to get to drive that car. Well, after that wreck, you said pretty much you were devastated that it happened, and you still sound very, you know, regretful today. But overall, how was how how difficult was that for you? 
Man. Well, I mean, a lot of so many people were pulling for me, and uh, uh, for it to go down the tubes like that, they had a big party planned that night with T.G. Shepherd was going to be there, and so I was. I mean, I, the last thing I want to do is go to a party after that. So, yeah, yeah I, it was. It was. You know, I was probably one of the lowest points in my career as a driver. Well, I can tell you about as an aside, and you don't have to run this. As, as an aside, you talk about the fans pulling for you. Up there in the press box, we were all pulling for you. And when it happened, we were, you know, yeah. just, give him another chance. You know, we were, <laughs> let him do it again. Hi, Jimmy. Uh, my name is Craig Dedman. Uh, I'm excited that you're going to be on the podcast. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Uh, been a fan of yours forever. Uh, my dad remembers you uh, from your Huntsville days. But uh, the question I had for you is, uh, you came up through the range from Huntsville to Nashville and made the trek to Winston Cup. You're always an independent driver. Um, and you had the one uh, deal with Hendrick in the uh, Folgers car. And uh, I was just wondering, uh, did you ever have any other opportunities through your career where you contacted about from other drivers or owners um, for an opportunity to drive their car? Or were you always uh, content to be your own, on your own, and uh, doing it your way? I mean, if I don't work on it and I don't own it, I don't go race. So yeah. I'm not one of those that's going to sit on the couch that came looking for me. So I knew what I could do on my own, and you know, and if if I was going to continue to do that, and if something came along, then I wanted to be prepared for it. But you sitting at home on the couch, you, nobody, you get forgotten, out of sight, out of mind. Well, as time went on, what did a good season look like for Jimmy Means? Uh, finishing the top twenty in in, uh, in owner points, and uh, we got we finished eleventh one year, uh, one spot to go into the big table in New York. Yeah. and I said, I'm not going to go to the to the banquet until I can sit on the on the big table there. Never made it that close again, but. Uh, uh, you know, the top 20 was important for us to plan money and, and the point money at the end of the year. At some point, your son Brad starts hanging around at the racetrack with this Earnhardt kid. What's your best story about Brad and Dell Jr. running around the racetrack together? Well, uh, they were typical teenagers, or, or you know, they were 12 and 13 at the time when they met. You know, I believe they even had a little fight one time. You know, my dad is better than your daddy type deal. I think it was, but uh, uh, you know, we're 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 glad to have Junior around us, hanging around us, and then uh, I think you know he's out of his daddy's hair and in ours. But at the same time, I thought it was I, I was a, it was a privilege to to have him hang around us and him and my son to be friends, and it was just good times. I think uh, actually my score, one of my scores, uh, babysitted for Junior at Daytona one time for big deal. Now, who broke up the fight? Did did you get oh, to it, break up? It, no, no, no. This is one that, that my son told me they did. Okay. I don't right. think it was a big, big fight, but just uh, just a little skirmish. Well, come on, man. It'd be a better <laughs> story if there was bloodshed. <laughs> well, there was no bloodshed, but I, I will say one time they got in a little bit of trouble. Somehow or another, we had a VCR. We had a VCR in our trailer, uh, TV-type deal thing. Yeah, I think somebody put something in there they shouldn't put in there. Oh, there we go. <laughs> so, now we're on to something. <laughs> I knew it. 
It was Dale's fault. No, it was Brad's fault. <laughs> Robin Scarberry asked, Hi, Jimmy and Rick. Uh, thank you for taking my question. I'm a really big fan of both yours, really big fan of this podcast. I can't wait for this episode. This is going to be a great one. Uh, Jimmy, my question for you is, who was your favorite competitor that you raced against during your driving days in the Cup Series? Thank you. Uh, probably, probably has to be Red Farmer. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was, uh, he was kind of my hero back, you know, because uh, uh, he was a pleasure to race against. Uh, drove you clean. Never, never once crashed me. Other, but I did crash him a couple of times. So, but he would drove you clean and just, uh, just, just prince of a fella. And he, uh, he called me Smutnik. Smut, <laughs> called me Smutnik. He told me first time I ever went to Daytona. He said, "Boy, don't ever go anywhere without your bathing suit and your overcoat." And he's pretty much right because you don't ever know what the weather's going to be anywhere. <laughs> Jimmy. We lost Hippie a few years ago. Tell our listeners about Brian Hippie Dorsey. Well, I mean, he's, uh, I really miss him. There's not a time he came through that door that he wasn't smiling. He told me one time everything he had was either bent, broke, burnt, or pregnant. <laughs> but he was still upbeat and working this guy. I mean, he, he, uh, he did all the body work, uh, put motors in, uh, to change gears, drove the truck. And one time I asked him, I said, Hibby, do you ever take anything stay weight? Because I used to ride with him all the time, you know, and I would spell, I would spell him when he really got tired. He said, heck yeah, how do you think I stay awake? So, yeah, he took something. I got to tell you a quick little story, too. When, uh, when I quit driving, uh, I got on with Bud Moore, and I told Actually, I went to Buck for Bud Moore and never told Hippie. He come in to work on Monday morning, I wasn't here. So I think he heard about it on uh, ESPN of the broadcast of the race at Wilkesboro <laughs> when I quit. So and my boss man is not here. What am I going to do? So uh, I come in that evening from Bud's. I said, I'm going to keep you on. I'm going to keep paying you. And as soon as I can get you on at Bud's, I'm going to get you on. And so it wasn't too long. Took a couple of months, we got him on at Bud's and driving the truck. Probably the best job I ever had because Bud paid by the hour and paid overtime. So he, he, he had it really nice. But uh, we were in Atlanta, and I was, I was rooming with him. And I uh, had a terrible headache, and, and I knew Hippie had goodie powders. So I go in, there in, the, in the bathroom in the shaving kit get a goodie powder. I take that goodie powder. I lay it down. Oh, I dear. I lay down. I lay on my, my arm, and my, my ears are beating. It's like a drum beating. Across my ankles, my heart's beating so, so loud. I can't go to sleep because of that. I never went to sleep that night. And we're standing, all the guys were standing behind the car, Bud's car, at Atlanta. And they, Hippie had him an entourage. Ben, uh, ben Phil was there and all them guys, and they were just horse laughing. And I walked by and said, what y'all laughing about? He said, oh, Hippie said, you won't laugh. I said, what you tell me? Yeah, I will tell me. And what it was, it was stay awake powder in that goodie powder so the DOT man wouldn't catch him. So I was on speed, didn't know it. Oh. <laughs> okay, there we go. Uh, <laughs> I don't know where to go from there, Steve. <laughs> Good thing that ain't drug test me that day. <laughs> Jimmy, I don't know how to ask this, but I'm just going to go ahead and ask it. You were involved in J.D.'s accident at Watkins Glen, and I know that losing Neil at Daytona a couple of years after that, two or three years after that, had a huge impact on you as well. 
How much of a role did those two accidents play in your decision to step out of the car? Well, J.D.'s deal, you know, that was a racing accident. He broke something, and uh, I was ahead of him, and he got into me and turned me towards the fence like he did. But I was fortunate I, I went head on through it, and he couldn't because his car was sideways. Yeah. And, I, and it broke his neck. Yeah. When I got to him, there was no blood or anything. He just broke his neck. His helmet was about right here on his ears because he just, you know, slung his neck. So that was a racing deal, and uh, I think Michigan was the next week. And, uh, you know, I, I was thinking about it. And, uh, I mean, I, you know, I just thinking about losing him. I wasn't thinking about really getting out of the car. But uh, uh, Steve Gray comes up to me and says, uh, we need you to qualify our ARCA car. So our driver something wrong. My driver didn't show up, blah, blah, blah. So. I still, you know, that was my first time back in a race car after JD. Is uh, was at a Michigan when I qualified that ARCA car, so and we made the race, so I kind of got got that out of the way when I got in, you know, our Cup car. So, but yeah, now losing Neil, we ran, you know, all the short tracks together back in the day. Uh, I finished second to him in points at Birmingham for uh, two years in a row, and I actually had him in my stopwatch watching him when he blew that tire and crashed. So, uh, yeah, that, that took a lot out of me. And then we lost uh, Rodney Orr on Monday. Right. And I said, uh, you know, my heart's not in it anymore. And I just, uh, I said, I'm just not going to do it. So I quit. Wow. And there's people out there right now that's driving their heart's not in it because the money's too big to quit. Hmm. But, you know, when you, I was there with, you know, with me and uh, Marcus. There was only two guys that really didn't have much funding. And we were racing to outrun each other. And I said, I don't need this. So. I decided to quit. All right. Well, you served as a team manager for Dick Trickle at Bud Moore's in 1995, and then as Wallace crew chief the next year. How'd that all come about? Uh, Donnie Wingo, I believe, uh, told me to, to talk to Bud. You know, said uh, they were thinking about doing something, but and I talked to Bud, and yeah, basically, basically signed on this, you know, a team manager type of role. But basically, what the role was. To, to be a mediator between Bud and uh, Donnie Wingo because they they couldn't talk without fighting. So <laughs> they, uh, that was a mediator. But then and Don, and Don, after that, Donnie got an opportunity to, I guess you know he saw the handwriting on the wall for us, Bud losing funding, and he got a Donnie got an opportunity to go with uh, Travis Carter, and then I I stepped into the uh, crew chief role at that point, and then until we lost all of our sponsorship, then Bud went out of business. Well, after being on your own, your own boss for so long, for better or for worse, what was it like working with somebody else? Well, I can tell you this, the clock never moved. I mean, you know, <laughs> when you work for yourself, I mean, it's like it's in warp speed. You, you don't have enough time to get everything done that you need to get done. But like I said, working for Bud, we worked from 8 to 5, not a, pen, uh, a moment past 5, and we didn't work on Saturdays. Uh, it, it, it was just different, but like I said, it just – when it's your own stuff, you have a little more interest in it. Uh, not that I didn't, you know, do my best for Bud, but it's just different when you own your own operation. Now, I understand that Bud had a very particular management style. It was basically his way or the highway. <laughs> How did that work with you having been your own boss for so long? Actually, it wasn't as what you think. I mean, early on, you know, for Bud, when he was, uh, when he was basically – the crew chief. I mean, he, even though somebody else was in that uh, position, he was still the crew chief. Right. But at this point, when I went to work for him, it was uh, 
not that way. He pretty much uh, give you a free hand. You know, I mean, he he basically his input was on the motors and whatever that was, but he didn't, you know, pretty much let you do what you needed to do. He told, did say one time, you know, Donnie would check the wedge with a jack and a socket to see how much wedge you had in the rear end, and uh, uh, Bud said, "Why is he? Why is he? No, they got that story backwards. Donnie was setting the car up with scales, you know, and then Bud didn't believe those scales, those numbers. He he believed in putting a jack on the rear end and see how much wedge was in the car. Then he knew it was was right, but not by the numbers and the pounds of the, of, of the weight." Jimmy, you made another move, and in 1998, you are Ed Barrier's crew chief in the Bush Series, and one of my all-time most favorite victories by anybody anywhere is when you guys won a Hickory that year. The thing about that victory, it wasn't the result of a big pileup. Ed won that race, and you guys were stout all day. It wasn't a gas mileage race it didn't take a rain shortened race with anybody where anybody stayed out on the racetrack at the right time ed won the race what did you guys have that day well we built that car brand new just because then it was only 30 cars that made the race we built that car brand new it was a laughlin car from scratch when we did that the lear deal with the 77 we had a little bit of funding so we could basically buy almost what we needed so we decided to build a brand new car. We went to uh, Greenville Pickens to test it. Then we took it to uh, to Hickory for the race. We, uh, I think we made one change the whole time we were there. We sat outside pole. And if we hadn't went, been the first qualifier out on that dirty track, I believe it would have sat on the pole. But, yeah, we just had it right. Had it right. And Ed was a, a phenomenal short track racer. After more than 20 years in the sport at that time and everything that you had been through as a car owner and a driver, what did it mean to you personally to win the race that day? Uh, the One of the main Ford guys gave me a call and said, you know, I want you to go talk to these people about taking this team over, being a general manager and a crew chief of this team. Uh, I think his name was, remember Preston? Yes. Yeah. Preston Miller. Miller. Preston Miller. Miller, yeah, he's the one that you know suggested with to to to, to me to talk to these guys, and they had, Preston had already talked to him. But we did that deal out of Mooresville, and uh, when I took it over in the, I think it was uh, June or so when I took it over, and uh, they already had existing personnel there, and I can remember, you know, they regret they resented me tremendously. I could feel the knives going my back every time I walked in the door. <laughs> So they just resented me because they kind of, you know, they were basically back. It was a laughing. That team was lacking, laughing stock you know, of the of the Bush series. Uh, so I think we made some gains. We we made a driver change, which that wasn't popular with uh, some people. But I felt like we needed to do something with somebody with some experience to to, to move the team forward. Uh, and at the end of the year, I told told the owner, I said, if you want me to do this again, you'll. I want to move to my shop in, in, in uh, Forest City because I'm not going to commute back to every day to do this. So that's what we did, and it, it was a good move. It, uh, it what I felt about that win is we took something from the bottom and basically took it to the top. It, it was a, it, I was pretty proud of that because that car was built right here in the shop, and we did uh, uh, we did all the uh, body work and all that on it. So. It was a pretty big deal. Well, all these years later, 
What keeps you going? I like to eat. <laughs> you know, if, if I took, if anybody puts any effort, uh, as much effort in any other kind of occupation as they do for racing, they've been able to retire a long time ago. So, <laughs> it, I, I mean, I like it. You know, if I've heard too many stories that people retire at 62, then something happens, and 64 they're gone. So, I just, you know, uh, my body's 70, but my mind's not. I wanna, I wanna, you know, I still enjoy going. Um, and we, we we judge racetracks where we want to go to is by the food we, you know, we like Talladega, top of the river, Do- <laughs> Dover, Sambo. So I mean, that's yes, how, that's, that's how we judge races and where we want to go. <laughs> Jimmy Means is my kind of guy. <laughs> I know both those places very well, and he is on the money. Hey, Jimmy, this is Edwin Turner in Greensboro, North Carolina, but I'm a Rutherford County native and grew up just a few miles south of your uh, your shop, and uh, over the past many years, I brought my dad uh, by to visit with me, too. So what I would like to know is, do you have a plan for how much longer you plan to be a car owner? Because I would like for you to be our Junie Dunleavy and uh, stay in this a long time, so I'll have a chance to uh, come by and see you again whenever I visit my dad next time and go 52. Hey, Edwin, uh, how about coming back to see us? Uh, well, that's some, somebody that they'll ask us, said, uh, how long, how much longer are you going to do this? I'll say one race at a time. Mm-hmm. So you never know what's coming around the corner. So I'm going to, you know, one race at a time. That's... Is that the system you're following during this? reshuffling of NASCAR and the scheduling and everything like you still pick one race at a time uh, or are you just sort of laying well, back mean, now we're, we plan on running all of them huh. you know, but it's a deal where uh, you never know what's going to happen so I mean it's a, uh, you know we have a, drive, a young driver Cody Vanderwall from Colorado uh, it's kind of with this pandemic deals going on it's kind of been rough on him because we go on the racetracks he's never even seen before, and he got to drop the green flag and go race. Yeah, so, practice. Uh, it makes it wow. tough. Makes yeah. it tough on him. But he's he's coming around. Coming around. Good. Hello, Scene Ball Podcast listeners. This is Eric Quinn from QWare. I'm so glad that racing is back. It's nice to see it on TV. And of course, it's been nice to continue to be able to listen to the Scene Ball podcast with Rick and Steve and all their guests. And of course, they just hit the milestone 100th podcast. And I'm so proud of what Rick and Steve have been able to do with the Scene Vault podcast in preserving the history of this great sport. There's a lot of time and effort that goes into everything that happens at the Scene Vault podcast. And at QWare, we are proud to be a part of it. We also know that it takes a lot of time and effort to take care of the places where you work. And we want you to check out QWare and see what we can do when it comes to facility maintenance. We are the most powerful, most simple to use computerized maintenance management system on the planet. So check us out at QWareCMMS.com and see what we can do for your facility maintenance team in helping to keep your campus and your facility up and running. Now let's get back to the podcast. Steve, what would it have been like to be in Jimmy Means' shoes and get that ride 
with Hendrick Motorsports in 1987. That must have been like Cinderella going oh, yeah. to the ball. It would be the opportunity of a lifetime, and no yeah. doubt about it. Here you are in a situation where you don't have to work on the car. You don't have to sweat the money. You don't have to sweat the bills. All you have to do is show up and drive. What a brand new world that is. Well, the flip side of that coin, and I think that the danger would be, and I'm not saying that this is what happened with Jimmy, but if it had been me, I would have felt all the pressure in the world. Yeah, there would be. There would be with some pressure because you're on the spot. You're expected to do well. There's this theory that goes on in racing and has gone on for quite some time is, is it the driver or is it the car? I love the fact that when Jimmy Johnson, the team manager, not the driver, but when Jimmy Johnson, the team manager at Hendrick Motorsports, called Jimmy Means to offer him this deal, Jimmy Means hung up on him, not <laughs> once, but twice, <laughs> not believing that it was for real. Oh, he thought somebody was pulling a trick on him. <laughs> and Steve, reporters can be a pretty cynical lot, but I don't think that there was anybody in that garage at that time who wasn't pulling for Jimmy to do well. We talked about it. We thought, what a great story this will make if Jimmy can do well in that Henry car. And we were almost universal in that opinion. And Steve, he did go out and he did qualify fifth. Fifth, yes, sir. So that was pretty special. And we're going to talk more about the actual race in our second segment, in our issue of the week segment. But Jimmy did wind up finishing 40th in the 42-car field after getting caught up in an accident just 20 laps into the race. And this accident was not of his making. He had nowhere else to go, and he simply got caught up in it. And again, we'll talk about the details in our second segment. But to have those kind of expectations, you know what, Steve? I can sympathize with Jimmy because this was his big chance, and it slipped away just like that. And you got to feel for the guy. Absolutely. Very disappointing. Very disappointing. And I tell you what, it was very disappointing for guys up in the press box that day. I mean, some of us said out loud, Jimmy just can't catch a break. It's a shame, boys. And even wrote some sidebars about Jimmy saying that. We have all had opportunities fall by the wayside for whatever reason. I can't even tell you how many times I have wished that I would have majored in journalism in college, and I didn't. That was my missed opportunity. But to Jimmy's credit, to borrow a phrase from our friend Kathleen McDonald, Jimmy kept right on digging, despite that huge disappointment that he experienced at Charlotte. And there is a bright side to the story. Even though he wasn't able to pull off the miracle victory with Hendrick Motorsports, it did bring him some attention that he might not have gotten otherwise, that he would not have gotten otherwise. And in 1989, he wound up with sponsorship from Alka-Seltzer. Steve, that was a beautiful race car. That Alka-Seltzer car is one that is most identified with Jimmy Means. That one sticks with him. Over the course of his career, and I don't mean this in any shape, form, or fashion as a criticism of Jimmy. But over the course of his career, Jimmy Means finished on the lead lap three times. He finished on the lead lap in the 1983 Winston 500 at Talladega. He started 41st and finished seventh that day behind Richard Petty. And he did talk about that race in particular in last week's installment of the interview that we did with him. 
1988, the Budweiser at the Glen, at Watkins Glen. He finished 14th behind race winner Ricky Rudd. And then in the 1989 Pepsi 400 at Daytona, the summer race, he finished 12th behind winner Davey Allison. And that was after he had failed to qualify for the Daytona 500 earlier that year. Again, I don't point that fact out that he finished on the lead lap just three times in his career. I don't point that out as a criticism. In fact, it's just the opposite for me. I admire the fact that Jimmy Means kept showing up at the racetrack. And here's what I would kind of equate it to. I would consider myself (laughs) the Jimmy Means of all the 5Ks and the 10Ks and the half marathons that I have ever run or walked. There was no way that I was ever going to win a race, ever. And the miles that I'm putting in now and the challenge with Marcus Lemonis, they're very slow miles. But a slow mile is still a mile. And it was the same thing for Jimmy. He wasn't going to win, but he did show up and he did try the best that he could with what he had. And that's why I think so many people admire Jimmy Means because they can see themselves in him. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. Jimmy Means tried to do the most he could with what he had, as you've already said. And his goals are somewhat different. In other words, he didn't want to go in there and win a race because he knew he couldn't, but he did want to go in there and survive and finish as well as he could in his own racing world. Jimmy told us that if he could finish in a top 20 in driver and owner points, that was a good season. So he had realistic approach to how to race. Jimmy was involved in the crash that claimed J.D. McDuffie's life in 1991 at Watkins Glen. But from what he said, that didn't seem to impact him quite as much as Neil Bonnet's accident did. They had raced together in Alabama. So Jimmy had known Neil for a long, long time. From what Jimmy said, he was actually watching when Neil had his accident. and. Then Rodney Orr lost his life just a couple of days after Neil's accident, and that was it for Jimmy Means. As tough as it was getting to even make races, much less run competitively, he said that his heart just wasn't in it. I'm not going to understand that, especially with the Neil Bonnet situation. As you pointed out, they go back a long way in Alabama, and uh, that's that's. How do you phrase this? And it's so hard to lose a longtime friend like that. I think that was the greatest influence on Jimmy's decision to retire. After Jimmy retired as a driver, he did have an opportunity to go to work for Bud Moore after having been his own boss for so long. And he did say that Bud paid overtime. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there was that. And they always, always, always got off at 5 o'clock. Well, for Bud, I guess it was a typical work day to knock off at 5 o'clock. But, uh, you know, I'm willing to bet that that team worked past 5 o'clock when the situation warranted it. So I don't doubt they got off most of the time at 5 o'clock. But I do think uh, there was a bit of overtime, as Bud said. <laughs> Working for himself, Jimmy was in charge of everything, so time just flew by. But working for Bud, the hands of the clock never moved. 
That's understandable. (laughs) I guess he was at Bud's for a couple of years, and then he went to work as Ed Barrier's crew chief in the Bush Series in 1998, and they won at Hickory. And, Steve, they didn't just win that day. They dominated. Ed led twice for a total of 187 of the race's 300 laps, including the last 107. By that time, I had already moved over, and I was the Bush Series editor at at that time, so I was at that race. And that, as I told Jimmy, is probably one of my all-time favorite race wins that I ever saw anybody collect because of what it meant to not only Ed Barrier, but especially but to Jimmy to, Means. But especially to Jimmy Means. So, right. Steve, what do you think that it meant to Jimmy Means to make it to Victory Lane after all those years? Tremendous sense of accomplishment. I don't think there's any doubt about that. I think Jimmy felt that he had done something that he wanted to do his whole life. Maybe he didn't drive for a victory, but he got a victory as a crew chief, and it made a lot of his hard work over the years pay off somewhat. I don't think there's any doubt about that. I loved racing at Hickory. I loved racing at all the standalone short tracks like South Boston and Myrtle Beach and Hickory. IRP was a great racetrack. But Steve, that day, the air barrier took his car to Victor Lane. I witnessed one of the scariest things that I had ever seen. There wasn't a wall for crews to stand behind as cars came down pit road. Whatever happened on the racetrack, Kevin Grubb wound up plowing into his team's pits. And my buddy, Todd Wilkerson, who was one of the management people at Bruco Motorsports at the time, he fell off the pit box and broke his arm. And that photo is in my book, Second to None, The History of the NASCAR Bush Series. I can see it today. Just the image of Kevin's car going into the pits like that my heart stopped. I can just imagine. In my mind, I knew that I was going to be writing some obituaries that day. And Todd was the only person that I recall who was hurt. Certainly, he was the most seriously hurt, other than some frayed nerves and near heart attacks. (laughs) But that was the last Bush Series race ever held at Hickory. And it's not an old school, new school thing. The simple fact of the matter was... I think it was a safety thing. Oh, no doubt about it. I'm kind of surprised the Bush Sears was even there in the first place. No wall along the pits. I mean, what happened in that race was just an illustration of what could have happened and could have been a lot worse. I don't have any doubt that that was part of the decision for NASCAR to leave Pickery. Today, Jimmy kind of picks and chooses the races that he attends. Now, the team runs every race, but evidently, Jimmy picks and chooses the races that he goes to. (laughs) And Steve, Jimmy Means is evidently a man after my own heart because according to Jimmy, he kind of chooses the races that he goes to based on the restaurants that are around. (laughs) He likes Top of the River in Talladega, and he likes Sambo's in Dover. Well, those are two good ones. Now, me, I like the pizza joint in Daytona Beach called Stavros. If you ever saw it, it's an absolute hole in the wall. But, man, (laughs) some seriously good Italian eating in that place. And there were other places, too. I like Top of the River, as I said. 
but there was a place in Adrian, Michigan called the Brass Lantern. That's where we stayed in Adrian. And we ate at the Brass Lantern when we were covering the Michigan races. Now, get this story. Came into the Brass Lantern one time to have dinner. And there, sitting at a table with his entire family, was Jimmy Means. <laughs> so Jimmy knows good eating. I'll tell you that. Well, Steve, here's a piece of information about Sambo's in Dover. One year, I wrote a column about the racetrack that wasn't exactly complimentary. And I did mention in that column that the only redeeming quality about Dover was the fact that you got to go eat at Sambo's. <laughs> Did you get any credentials at Dover thereafter? <laughs> <laughs> I got a letter from the Dover Chamber of Commerce. Uh-oh. <laughs> and they laid me out. They talked about the nearby beaches and this and that. And, you know, when we go there for a race, we didn't have time to go to the beach. We were at the racetrack. Right. And they concluded in this letter by saying, and by the way, Sambo's, is not in Dover. It's in Leipzig. <laughs> and I started to write back. If Sambo's isn't actually in Dover, there's not a single reason to go to Dover. <laughs> and listen, if you're in the Dover area right now and you love Dover Downs, the racetrack, I became a fan. I eventually got used to the area and did find things to like about it. But Steve, I was like you. I had all my Chinese buffets that I went to across the country, but even more special was Sambo's in Dover. I'm sorry, Sambo's in Leipzig. <laughs> <laughs> and then there was Rendezvous Ribs in Memphis. Steve, have you ever been to Rendezvous Ribs? No, I have not. Holy cow, man. I... Rendezvous Ribs. Yes. Interesting yes. name. One of my buddies in racing, Charlie Rokes, wanted to go to Rendezvous Ribs. And I was going to go and I was just going to order a hamburger because I'm not necessarily a rib eater, mm -hmm. but you go to rendezvous ribs and you get seated and that's basically literally all they have on the menu is ribs. So I got a half a rack of ribs and I was just going to nibble. Well, I got a taste of those rendezvous ribs and I ordered another half rack. <laughs> <laughs> we went back the next night, and I ordered a full rack, and that became our go-to place, Rendezvous Ribs. You literally walk down a deserted alley. Really? In downtown Memphis to get to this place. <laughs> you pass trash dumpsters to get to this place. But once you are there, it is absolutely worth it. Oh, I miss Rendezvous Ribs so much. Ripstick and stuff, huh? <laughs> Steve, follow Brian Kelb on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens and check out his inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com. Lately, our buddy Brian has been doing some theme posts. And this week, he posted several Folgers-related items. There was a Mark Martin T-shirt. There was a Ken Schrader T-shirt. I think oh. there might have been a Tim Richmond T-shirt. Folgers cap. Folgers cap. So it was all Folgers-related. And then, of course, yesterday, going into the Southern 500, he posted several Southern 500-related items. I saw that. So his inventory is just absolutely amazing. 
Yes, it really, really catches your eye because you see something that he puts up there and you go, I don't remember that, man. And that's the way I feel about it. Every time I go on there, he's got some kind of item that I don't recall at all. And that makes it even more enticing. <laughs> so again, follow Brian Kelb on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens and check out his inventory at Speedway tsj.etsy.com that is speedway tsj.etsy.com the october 15th 1987 issue of grand national scene covered bill elliott's win in the Oakwood Holmes 500. That was his fourth race win of the season. And at the end of that race, he had as much as a 3.95 second lead over second place Bobby Allison before he eased up a little bit to kind of conserve fuel a little bit. And at the checkered flag, Bill was 2.22 seconds ahead of Bobby Allison. And Bill said in your race lead, those tires seem to be just right. Our stop enabled us to get out ahead of Bobby, and that made the difference. We knew we were going to go a long way on the right side tires, and I don't have to say anything about how long those left side tires were on the car. And I was running on gas fumes at the end. If we had to go another two laps or so, I don't think that we would have made it. Now, Bobby started the race from the pole, and he led six times for a total of 142 laps, more than any other driver that day, but he got some tires on that last pit stop that didn't quite match the car's setup. And then on top of that, he said that he was down on horsepower to Bill late in the race. So the story of this race, though, would have to be the devastation that took place before the halfway point. That was the interesting point. All this devastation took place before the race was half over. Lap 21, Derek Cope and Dale Earnhardt got together between turns one and two. Dale was then tagged by Ken Schrader, and the wreck also collected Jimmy Means, Buddy Baker, and Greg Sachs. And as we mentioned earlier, Jimmy had qualified fifth. He was going into this race with all kinds of expectations, but again, because of this accident, he wound up 40th in the 42-car field. And Jimmy said, it was disappointing especially after all that stuff, all that press we got this week. It was unfortunate. Somebody was trying to prove themselves and got in over their head, but that's racing. A few cars were squirrely at the time, but I don't know exactly who. I was a little loose too, but I really didn't see it happen. I just went to the bottom. Somebody got together with somebody else in front of us, but I don't know who it was. I was just a victim. That was pretty disappointing for Jimmy. And as I said earlier, all of us in the press box were very, very, very disappointed as well because what a great story it would have made had Jimmy been able to do very well in that race. Steve, you did note in your race lead that there was talk that Jimmy would get another shot in the car at Atlanta, but that one didn't quite pan out for whatever reason. Yeah, word leaked out that uh, Hendrick was going to give Jimmy another chance because he knew that what happened to Jimmy wasn't his fault. But for some reason, like you said, it never really advanced any further than that. 
after getting together with Derek Cope, Dale Earnhardt limped to a 12th place finish five laps down, but that was enough for him to all but clinch the 1987 Winston Cup championship. All he had to do was start the next race at Rockingham and the title was his. He said in your race lead, Derek Cope wrecked all of us and that knocked out my clutch in the front end. We were lucky to make up the laps and go to the front. Then the brake line broke. We came in and fixed that. I still feel the car ran awfully good, and I think we could have won the thing if not for that wreck. Now, Steve, Dale Earnhardt and Derek Cope. It seems to me like I've heard about another race somewhere (laughs) down the line, maybe a couple of years later, that would turn into this big event as well. Yeah, well, at that time, in 1990, in Daytona, at that time, Dale was leading the race, going for his first Daytona 500 victory, and behind him was Derek Coe. They didn't wreck, but Dale ran over a broken bell housing, <laughs> which you can see in the Richard Children's Museum, and had to back off, and then Derek went on to win the race. Then Neil Bonnet crashed in turn four on lap 57 and safety crews had to bring out the jaws of life to get him out of the car. We mentioned this event a few weeks ago when he got hurt, I think in 1988, the following year, but Neil wound up with a broken right hip. And there is a photo in this issue of the grimace on Neil's face when they took him out of that car. That's one of the more powerful photos that Scene ever carried. The look on Neil's face was captured just perfectly. Now, Ricky Rudd said in a sidebar item, my right front fender was about touching Neil's bumper when his tire blew. It exploded so loud that it scared the hell out of me. It was like a bomb went off. He hit hard. I really should have been in that wreck. When it happened, I was just trying to pass him, and he was running high. It popped. He slammed the wall, and I thought he was going to bounce back into me. I was waiting for the jolt, but he hit so hard that his car stayed in the wall. That was the only thing that saved me. A scene on the circuit news item about this accident said that on October the 12th, the day after this race, (laughs) nine drivers... (laughs) (laughs) called Ray Mike Enterprises offering to fill in for Neil. Nine drivers, Steve. Now, it might be easy to imagine that all nine of these guys called up because the Ray Mike ride was a very good ride. Yeah. And they wanted to be in it. And I think that another thing that caused the nine drivers to call Ray Mike is to offer to help. To help Neil and to help the team. A sense of duty she would say, was part of the reasoning here. It's so nice that you think that. (laughs) (laughs) Well. They wanted that ride, man. All right. right. (laughs) (laughs) And Steve, Joe Rutman eventually did get the nod, and he did post a couple of top ten finishes in his three races for that team. He drove the last three races of the year and did get a couple of top ten finishes out of it. What you would expect. Joe was a competent driver. Ray Mock, a very good team. They kept their image and their ability to be competitive intact. And here's something else that I hadn't thought about until just now. When Neil left to go to the Wood Brothers, I believe in 1989, 1990, who drove for Ray Mock after that? Joe Rutman. Joe Rutman. So that might be where 
this relationship started. I don't know. Well, let's put it this way. Um, Joe made enough of an impression to get himself a very good ride in the coming year. So maybe the fact that he wanted to get that ride wasn't so much out of a sense of duty, shall we say, but to get an opportunity to do something. Then on lap 82, Mike Waltrip blew his engine in front of Starlin Marlin coming out of turn four, and the entire field basically scattered behind them through the grassy trial. Well, and I thought the interesting note there was that Waltrip was referred to as Mike and not Michael. Phil Parsons tagged the wall in turn two on lap 106. Jeff Bodine, Rick Wilson, Bobby Hillen, Dave Marcus, Daryl Waltrip, Alan Quick, and Brett Bodine, they wrecked on lap 127. And then, Steve, finally, Ken Reagan and Larry Pearson each spun out to bring out the final two cautions. Between wrecks and mechanical failures, only 19 of the 42 cars that started this race were running at the finish, and several of the cars that did make it to the checkered flag had been caught up in those big multi-car crashes. So this was a day of carnage. Absolutely. Only three cars finished on the lead lap. And those of Billy Elliott, the winner, of course, Bobby Allison, and Sterling Bonner. They were the only drivers on the lead lap. Seven cars for 59 laps for that race. And most of those cautions were really caused by some very, very wild wrecks. Davey Allison completed 279 laps before his engine let loose. He wasn't involved in any of the day's accidents, but it, but Steve, it evidently wasn't from a lack of trying. <laughs> Davey said, I never had so much practice dodging wrecks in all my life. I tell you, everything that happened, happened right in front of me. The first wreck, the Bodine wreck, I ran over Neil's hood, the Ken Reagan wreck, Larry Pearson's wreck, when Mike Waltrip blew up and the 44 of Sterling Marlin spun. And then on the first one, I was right there, and I don't even know how I got through it. So Davey was pretty busy that day, evidently. Absolutely, but I tell you this, having that blown engine and get out of the race might have been a sense of relief for him that he didn't (laughs) have to stay out there any longer. (laughs) Also in this issue were two or three feature stories. Deb had a feature on Ken Schrader, who had recently signed to drive for Hendrick Motorsports the following season, 1988 but only after he and Bud Moore had come really, really, really close to signing the deal. And I love the detail in this feature about how the deal with Hendrick Motorsports got done. His 10-year-old nephew was spending some time with Ken and Ann in the Charlotte area. And to kind of entertain the kid, Ken was taking him through some of the shops in the Charlotte area the week before Darlington. And they stopped by the Hendrick Motorsports shop where Waddell Wilson was showing Ken's nephew around. And Ken said in Deb's feature during the tour, Waddell asked me, you've got to be really excited about next year. I said, yes, I am. I'm looking forward to working with Bud. I said, the deal's not all done yet though. When I said it wasn't all done, Waddell said, you're kidding me. And I said, no, he said, well, I know some place where your name has been mentioned a bunch, but it was just assumed you guys were done. And I said, no, we're not done yet. So it went from there. Jimmy Johnson was there and Waddell went and got him. We talked for five or 10 minutes and I met with Rick the next day. 
I really feel bad the way that it happened because Bud and I were 95% there, but I felt it was an opportunity I couldn't pass up. So, Steve, this deal with Hendrick Motorsports, from what Ken said, happened almost totally by chance. Yeah, by chance. Just think about it. If Ken Schrader had not taken his nephew on a tour of the Charlotte shops and been in the Hendrick shop, when Waddell Wilson was there to help him take that tour, none of this would have happened. None of this would have happened. It's incredible how many things happen in racing that are sheerly by fate. Now, Steve, again, the kind of cynical part of a reporter's nature would be to say, I wonder if that conversation might not totally have been by chance. I wonder if Ken, at least in the back of his mind, was saying, you know, this deal with Bud ain't done yet. And so if I take him by Waddell's place and I happen to mention that my deal's not done, maybe they might have a place for me. Man, are you ever cynical? <laughs> <laughs> How could Ken plot all of that? <laughs> Steve, three or four episodes ago, our issue of the week just so happened to include a feature on Eddie Beerswell the very same week that Larry McClure had talked about how Morgan McClure Motorsports picked up the Kodak sponsorship after Eddie had lost it. This issue included a feature on Brett Bodine, and it just so happens that Brett is our next guest here on the podcast. Well, you're not going to tell the story now, are you? No, I'm not going to tell the story now. I'm not going to go into the details of the story because we pretty much covered it all in our interview with Brett, but I just thought that it was cool how things seem to connect so well between the podcast and the issues that we go through. Well, you're absolutely right on that, Rick. Time and again, we've gone through these issues of scene and been able to hook them into the people we're having on this show. There was an interesting item in the pit pass section. Terry Labonte was fined $200, $200, Steve, for deliberately bringing out the caution at North Wilkesboro. He had cut a tire and brushed the wall in turn four on lap 39, so he stopped on the racetrack. But as soon as Harold Kinder started waving the yellow flag, Terry took off again and managed to stay on the lead lap. Do you think? <laughs> okay. So, yeah, he stopped on purpose and to That's bring right. out the caution, stay on the like lead lap. Said, Do you think? Well, of course he did. <laughs> that was all well and good. But then Terry went on to win the race. <laughs> and that was his first victory for team owner Junior Johnson. He was fined $200, and the winner's share of the purse was $45,575. So he was more than $45,000 to the good. I'll tell you, NASCAR is just, I can't believe how they treat these competitors. That big a fine? <laughs> oh, come on, NASCAR. <laughs> beer money steve i can't help but wonder what the conversation on social media would be if something like that happened today i would duck if i were you (laughs) banjo matthews was a fan of grand national scene but evidently not all of its writers there was a pit pass item in which he said i've been reading grand national scene since it started and i've seen it grow the stories are good the paper is laid out good and there are a lot of pictures. Everything is good about it, except Joe Whitlock. (laughs) (laughs) 
Come on, Banjo. That was hard to understand. <laughs> Banjo used to write for Scene. He wrote a technical column on every issue in the early days of Scene. Did Banjo actually write it, or was it kind of told to one of the writers? It was told to me. <laughs> okay, okay. I, I get on the phone once a week with Banjo and talk to him, and we talk about the issues of the day. And sometimes I would give him questions that I had or fans had about the technical issues, and he would answer those, and that would make up his column. Steve, also another SOC item described Junior Dunleavy's plight. Within the last month or so before this issue came out, he had lost driver Ken Schrader to Hendrick Motorsports. Crew chief Bob Johnson had moved over to DK Ulrich's team. And sponsor Red Baron Pizza went to Buddy Baker's new team. And talking about Red Baron, Junior said in this story, I have nothing in writing with them for this year. It was just a handshake, but it doesn't seem like a handshake means much anymore. That's bad when you have to walk around with lawyers and contracts. I just don't know. And Junie went on to say, my driver, crew chief, and sponsor all at once. Well, I'd rather have that happen than have a heart attack or something. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good way of looking at it. Junie did get sponsorship from Bullseye Barbecue Sauce for the 1988 season with Benny Parsons as his driver. So there was a silver lining. But for Junie to lose his driver, his crew chief, and his sponsor in such a short amount of time, that had to be just a huge blow to him. Oh, absolutely. No doubt about it. But getting Bullseye Barbecue Sauce and Benny Parsons as his driver meant that Junie was going to be okay for at least one more year. And 1988, ironically, turned out to be Benny's last year as a competitor. After Neil had been hurt at Charlotte, there was another story in the SOC section in this issue in which Neil talked about how being a race car driver was not the most dangerous job that he had ever had. He had been a pipe fitter working on high-rise construction sites right out of high school. We knew when Neil came on board full-time in Winston Cup competition, he told us that he was a pipe fitter. Now, a lot of us didn't know what that was, didn't think much about it. But as we were about to learn, there was a considerable amount of danger involved. Neil said in this story, racing is dangerous, but I've been in a lot worse situations when I was working on tall buildings or electrical plants. I lost a lot more friends in construction accidents than I will ever lose because of wrecks and racing. The difference is that when I'm in a race car and I see somebody get into the wall, I figure they'll be all right. These cars are built to protect the driver, and the reality is that you can walk away from a pretty good hit. And Neil concluded by saying, when you slip off the 18th floor of a building, Reality isn't very pretty. That's when we all learned being a pipe fitter was not for the weak of heart. Neil, at this time, still carried his pipe fitter's union card. He said in 1964, when I got out of high school, I started working and went to pipe fitting school two nights a week for five years. As an apprentice, you're the guy who wraps his leg around a beam and hangs over the side of the building. I did a not lot of me. that. <laughs> not me. <laughs> I'm not scared of heights. That I don't have a problem with that at all. But still, that just gives me the willies. Yeah, just imagine yeah. in that scenario. But he did say, I did a lot of that stuff for five years. 
after all I went through to get that union card, there's no way I would ever throw it away. I don't even blame you. I mean, two classes a, a week for five years. And what does that get you? That gets you the right to go out and hang off a building, which <laughs> nobody with any common sense would do. No, I wouldn't get rid of the card either. I, I'd carry it around as a badge of honor. <laughs> Hi, I'm Lake Speed. You're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast. Steve, I didn't think it would be right for us to let this episode pass without mentioning the fact that Larry Hedrick died last week. And, of course, Larry fielded a Winston Cup team for several drivers, most notably in the 1990s. We just had Ricky Craven on a few weeks ago talking about his time with Larry and the number 41 team. So, Steve, that was a big loss. Yeah, Larry was a major part of NASCAR and Winston Cup racing, mostly, like you said, through the 90s, but uh, he was well-respected. Also, I didn't find this out until yesterday, but we also lost Carrie Baumgartner, who was the daughter of base motorsports team owner Bill Baumgartner and his wife Bobby. Base Motorsports, the B-A-C-E and Base Motorsports, were the initials of each of their four kids. There was Brian, there was Anna, there was Carrie, and then there was Emily. And, of course, Carrie would have been the C in Base Motorsports. So for a parent to lose a child, my heart just goes out to Bill and Bobby. My prayers are with them. Very well said, Rick. Finally, in conclusion, my weekly accountability update. I now stand at 4,953.21 miles. That leaves me with 46.7 miles to go before I hit 5,000. I now have less than 50 miles to go. Oh, Rick, how about that? The sky's the limit. Go for it. (laughs) The sky's the limit, and the skies are also a lot cooler. Steve, this morning when I got out of my car, it was 58 degrees compared to what we've seen that is really polar weather and i cannot begin to tell you how good that felt i felt like a 100 pound weight had been lifted off my back well you should run the four miles then let's not get crazy Hey, if you and Margaret aren't doing anything two weeks from Friday, you need to come up and hear Adam and Jesse and their buddies sing. Sure. Where is it? It's in downtown Yakinville. Oh, boy. (laughs) Hope we can find our way around. (laughs) 